This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, this is Recode Media. This is not Peter Kafka, but Peter Kafka is sitting across from me. Smirking. In a pink shirt today. Yeah. His first foray into pink. Introduce yourself, Golda. I am Golda. The Gold Arthur. I am the Gold Arthur. I am the senior producer of Recode Media, and I am the person... You are the person I've wanted to be a recurring character on this show, and today I get my wish. It's my early birthday present. Thank you, Golda. Today I have lost the battle not to be a presence in the show on the mic, but here I am. We're going to try something a little different today on the show. In a couple of minutes, we're going to get on with the guests on the show, which today are Anjali Sood, who is... CEO of Vimeo. And what is Vimeo? Vimeo is a website that is not YouTube, but is still a video website and has had a bunch of different iterations and is doing something pretty interesting. I thought she was great, actually. She's a fascinating interview. And after that, we do... Is, today's a twofer. Twofer. Maybe even a threefer. Two for the price of one, which is zero dollars. You're welcome. Derek Thompson from The Atlantic. We've had him before. He's great. He's got a podcast out. We'll talk about that. We just, it's just an excuse for me to tap Derek's giant brain right. about media and everything else. So these are really great guests. And actually, I found them both very insightful on a bunch of things. But before we get to that... News. Always news to talk about, I think, in media, which is why we're getting to it at the top of the show. I want to know about CBS Viacom. CBS and Viacom. CBS and both Viacom. controlled slash owned by Sherry Redstone. His father Sumner built those companies. He's still alive, but he's no, his hand is not on the rudder. Uh, there's a long story behind that. You can read Keech Hagee's great book about how his, his life. Uh, anyway, they have been trying to get together. Sherry Redstone has wanted CBS and Viacom to get together for three years now. Uh, and today's news is that maybe sometime in the next few weeks, CBS is finally going to sort of formally make an offer to combine, to buy Viacom. Doesn't mean it'll happen. Probably is going to happen, though. Why is it taking three years to do this? It's a very long story. Again, you should definitely read Kichaki's book. But um, Sherry Redstone has controlled these two companies. She wants them to get together because we're now in a world where everyone thinks you need to get bigger and bigger and bigger to compete with Apple and Netflix and AT&T. I mean, AT&T bought Time Warner. Time Warner was one of the biggest media companies. Disney bought Fox. Everyone is bulking up. Uh, and by those standards, CBS and Viacom, which are pretty decent-sized companies look really small. Um, so Sherry Redstone wants to combine them and probably combine them with another asset and maybe sell all those to a Verizon or an Amazon or whoever. She's been wanting to do it, and uh, but life is messy. Um, there are egos involved. For a long time, one of the big sticking points was the fact that uh, Les Moonves, who up until a year ago was considered you know, one of the, the outstanding media leaders, really didn't want to do the deal, essentially. Didn't want to give up control, and he could essentially block it. Cut to now, 
Les Moonves no longer works at CBS. He's persona non grata. Um, probably a terrible harasser, allegedly. Probably. Allegedly. And so Cheryl Redstone can essentially get these two companies together. She can't technically do that. Um, there's a weird legal fight, uh, again, involving her father and, and Les Moonves that essentially prevents her from actually compelling the two companies to merge for a while. But they're both owned slash controlled by her. They both, both the boards know what she wants them to do. They have to do their fiduciary duty and dot all their eyes, but they will push them together at some point. Uh, well, first, tell me what the next step is, what the next thing you're expecting to happen here, and then what happens when they merge? So sometime this summer, there'll be a formal offer from CBS that says, this is what we think Viacom is worth. And by the way, here's how we think the management will be structured. That's a big deal. Um, Sherry Redstone has wanted Bob Backish, who runs Viacom, to sort of run the combined company. Uh, CBS doesn't have a CEO right now. Uh, they've got an acting CEO. So figuring out who's actually going to run the combined thing will be a mess. But it'll get done, probably. And then once that happens, there's a year to 18 months of combining those companies. Who's in, who's out, which assets are we keeping, how are we programming, all this stuff. And then maybe at the same time, Sherry Redstone will try to combine the merged company with another asset like Lionsgate slash Stars, another one of these sort of like smaller sized uh, media companies that she could tack onto that and get some bulk. Uh, and after that, who knows? I mean, there's still going to be, I would I would go to recode.net and look at our media landscape chart. There's still going to be a very small company compared to a Disney Fox or an AT&T Time Warner or even NBCU Comcast. Um, they're still being considered undersized. So I'm not really sure what the plan is there other than they're probably worth more combined to an acquirer, I think is what Sherry Redstone really thinks, than they would be uh, standalone companies. So yeah. she probably wants to sell them. Scale, 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 right? Yeah, and by the way, the, the the other thing I think that's interesting about all this is it underscores the fact that there actually has not been that much M&A in media. Um, we had the AT&T Time Warner deal. Once the, the courts approved that deal, um, we all thought there'd be a, a wave of these deals happening, and there really hasn't been, and it, that's kind of interesting. All that is great to know about. And, and what does this have to do with, with Vimeo, you ask? I, I'm wondering, yeah. Peter, what does this have to do with Vimeo? They are related because there was a minute— a couple of years ago, when Vimeo was saying, Vimeo isn't run by Barry Diller, said, we're going to get into streaming. We're going to get into this original content world. We see what Netflix is doing. We see what Amazon is doing. We want some of that, too. They, they announced they were going to make their own shows and, and, and stream them, and you were going to be able to subscribe. And then one day they said, actually, no. We're definitely not doing that. Um, and I think wisely, they realized that they were not in no way going to be able to compete with the Netflixes and Amazons and AT&Ts of the world. I mean, AT&T is just doing a deal right now with J.J. Abrams for $500 million for X number of years. That's just for the right to work with him. That isn't what they're going to actually spend on the stuff he makes. That's just a check to him for the right to keep working with J.J. Abrams. Um, so they, Vimeo got out of that world, and now they're in a, a, in some ways, much more boring business, which is selling video services to mom-pop retailers. But it's also an interesting one, so that's what we're going to talk to Anjali about. Right. So. so let's get straight to it then. Here is Anjali Sud from Vimeo. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm talking to you from Vox Media headquarters in New York City. My guest has just complimented me on the headquarters. Thank you. Of course. My guest is Anjali Sood. She's the CEO of Vimeo, also has fancy headquarters. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Peter. Um, you've had this job for a couple years? I am about to hit two years. Two years. You have been at Vimeo longer than that. Yep, about five years. 
And Vimeo has gone through a couple different iterations, depending on how closely you paid attention. You know that it's a video website. It's Maybe you know that it's owned by Barry Diller. If you know it's a video website, that's even better, because usually people think that we're Vivo or Venmo. Okay. Well, those are, well, I don't know if they're six. Well, Vivo, mm, all right. They're both companies. Yeah, we got that. Make video. For a long time, I thought of Vimeo as this thing that might have been YouTube, and I think Barry Diller, who runs IAC, thought it might have been YouTube. There was a stretch where they were going to get into the video subscription business and sell other people's videos, and they were going to get into the Netflix business and make their own videos, and then sort of record scratch, and they said, no, 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 scrap all that. We're doing something else, and that's where you come in. Yeah, so we have gone through several identities at Vimeo over its 15-year history, started as an entertainment destination like YouTube. Then, you know, what ended up happening was we had all these creators coming to the platform. They brought great content. That content brought viewers. One day you wake up and suddenly you have 200 million monthly viewers and you start to think, oh, maybe we can build a a Netflix. Um, And so that was something, when I first came to Vimeo, that was the strategy and something that we were looking at. And and it made sense at the time because we had this amazing community and we had creators who were making shorts that were going viral and getting picked up by HBO. And, you know, it, you could see a scenario where we could be successful. Yeah, you guys and, are the home of high maintenance. High maintenance, yeah, show. which is, yeah, still on HBO, HBO today. Yeah. And, and so there was, I think, a, there was a real sort of window in time where it could have made sense. And effectively what happened is, the stakes change in original content. You, went, you got far down the path. You, you guys hired people. You said, we've, we've hired this executive from Hollywood. She's going to make a bunch of shows. We're going to put money into it. And then one day he said, eh. your CEO at the time, Joey Levine, yes. said, nope, actually, we're totally not doing that. Yeah, look, I think uh, we took it really seriously. We invested seriously. And the industry changed as we were putting together our content. Accelerated. Accelerated. And frankly, the investments went from millions to billions. And when you think about it, look, IAC wants, you know, their strategy is to invest in large markets where they can have long-term competitive advantage. And we initially felt that we could be differentiated because of our community. But when when people are investing billions and billions in content, that differentiation starts to go away. And at the same time that we were sort of seeing the struggles in original content. On the flip side, uh, the business that I was running within Vimeo was focused on building tools for the people behind the camera, for all the creators who are going to be making content in this new era. And that business was doing incredibly well. And so when when you start to see challenges in your core strategy, and you're lucky and fortunate enough to have this other strategy that's working, you pivot. And by the way, I think the internet is littered with companies that didn't pivot when they saw the signs. And yeah. I think it's it's hard, but it's also smart. Pivoting is good. I think it gets a bad rep because it gets overused and it's a sort of cliche. Um, but generally, whatever idea you have when you start a business probably isn't the right idea. You probably need to tweak it significantly. Um, you can debate what a pivot is, but probably if you haven't pivoted, you've done something wrong. Especially in an industry like video, where it's, you know, technology is changing, consumer expectations are changing. You know, you should expect that you as a company are going to need to shift. But this business is actually the business you've always had. 
at Vimeo, right? The, the, the way that Vimeo has always made money is by selling subscriptions to people who made videos, not to people who consumed videos. And there was never an advertising business, though I always assumed you were going to get into it. It's always been this business where you sell a subscription to people who are professional or, or amateur, but usually professional people who make videos, right? And that is the business you're sort of still in today. Yeah. So we've never made money on advertising. We've always had a subscription model for creators. What's changed, I think, is that our definition of a creator has expanded significantly. You know, we really catered to independent filmmakers um, and video professionals for you know, at least a decade plus of Vimeo's history. Right, if you got and a reel from someone, it was probably a Vimeo. Exactly. If you were an agency or a videographer, you know, you were using Vimeo. What's changed is we've really think of ourselves now as much more of a B2B software company, a technology company. And our definition of a creator is everyone from the independent filmmaker to a small business to a Fortune 500 company, because now all of those people and organizations need to communicate on the web with video, and they need professional quality tools and a workflow to do that. And there aren't alternatives out there that are focused on this part of the market. So where you're headed is this sort of enterprise model where, and then you're going to sell, So in addition to the Hollywood folks and New York ad agencies and independent filmmakers to someone who's got a whatever shop and wants to make their own video that's going to run a commercial that's going to run on Facebook or YouTube or wherever. Yeah. And you want them to use you to help make that video. Yeah, make video, video for their website, for Facebook, for Instagram, for training videos, any way in which they need to engage with their customers or audience. And the reality is we've already made that transition today. The vast majority of new users and growth that we see on the platform are already businesses and organizations. And that market's huge. You know, I liken it to the website builder market where 10 years ago, uh, the idea that any local coffee shop could have their own website and right. build it in an hour seemed kind of crazy. And then you have like Wix and Squarespace yeah. and GoDaddy come up. And I think in a couple years when Vimeo does its job, any small business or local company or big brand is going to be able to have a successful online video strategy because of our tools. And again, the Squarespace, Wix, that, that business always surprised me because I sort of thought there was this period in the really olden days where there were, there were companies that only made websites and they went public, like organic, and then all went away. And one of the reasons it went away is because it turns out it wasn't that complicated to make a website and people were charging way too much money. But it turns out there was a gap between people who would make websites for big companies versus your local flower shop that did not know how to make a website at all, and they filled that gap. And so you, you guys sort of want to go in the same place. Same, same exact place. I mean, the way I think of it is today, any company or brand or organization needs to basically operate like a media company on the internet. I, I always use the Warby Parker example. If you go to Warby Parker's Facebook page, they're an eyeglass company. They make eyeglasses. They're not a media company, but they're producing video every day, sometimes multiple times a day to engage with their audience. And so that need is there. And if you just think about like a local small business, there's no way today that they would say, oh, yes, it's really easy for me to make multiple videos a day 
in addition to running my business. And those are the tools that Vimeo is working on providing, everything from making video to hosting and distributing video to knowing if, you know, your your videos are performing well. I was getting myself up to speed uh, before you got here. Did actual research, went to your investor relations website, wow. clicked on some buttons. It looks like it's working, right? You're uh, $160 million last year, give or take. You lost $28 million, uh, growing fast, 23% growth first quarter. Am I hitting all the numbers for you? You are nailing a it. A million subs? <laughs> yeah, I think we see a lot of validation. So this was a business that existed. What did you have to do to sort of make it grow faster or to lean into the pivot to use two cliches? And <laughs> uh, good old-fashioned focus and investment in product. You know, the reality is this problem that we're trying to solve where anyone can have a video, successful video strategy, you know, in the future, it's not an easy problem. And we do have a lot of investment that we're making in new tools and technology. How are we using our community to help others make better videos? So we're constantly, it's about our roadmap and what we're launching to offer that value proposition that we think in a couple of years is going to be really disruptive. You said marketing somewhere in there, right? <laughs> I, I didn't mention no? marketing, but it, it's it's a good point. That seems it's, like it's the major thing, right? You need to let the small business know that you can help the small business make a video. For sure. Uh, we actually just launched our um, our first brand campaign. If uh, if any of your listeners are in San Francisco, they might have seen it. Uh, Didn't I see it on the subway here? And in New you York? might have seen it, yes, yeah. in the New York subway too. It's the first time we've we really tried something like this. And uh, the reason is that you know for Vimeo, it's true not only do do most businesses not know this is our strategy? But we also have, you know, 13 years of brand equity that's been built up where people think of us as sort of the highbrow YouTube. Yeah. So we not only have to increase brand awareness, we have to change it, um, which isn't easy, but that is an area of opportunity for us. And I think, you know, the reality is we're seeing good results with most people still not really understanding what we do, which means that there's plenty of room for us to do better. So how, how does this work? So you were you were running this core business, the subscription business, uh, the creator business. Carrie Trainer, who's now running SoundCloud, was the CEO. Yep. He leaves. There's like a year-long search for replacement. Turns out you're the replacement. And also the thing that you were doing is now the core strategy. I'm assuming it doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> yeah, look, it was um, it was not something I would have predicted because our core strategy was original content. But at the end of the day, you know, IAC, our parent company, I think, and Barry Diller, they respond well to results. You know, it's an intellectually honest culture. And, you know, when when one part of the strategy is challenged and there's another that's working, it does sort of become obvious that that's the right trade-off to make. Yeah, but it doesn't just happen on its own, right? You have to sort of raise your hand and campaign. And how does, how does that work? Yeah, well, for me, it was, um, I wouldn't say it was campaigning, but I had to prove it. I had to prove it. And we, I can tell you, we certainly wouldn't have made the shift if we weren't showing several quarters of clear results. And results being things like we had, a, I think, about a 50-person team that I was overseeing at the time, so still a relatively small amount of resources compared to all of Vimeo. And we were launching new products, and our customer satisfaction scores doubled in a course of three months. You know, and uh, revenue was accelerating. And all these things were happening that gave us, I think, confidence that we had something here. And then, of course, internally, I was championing that strategy. I took every opportunity I could to kind of pitch why I felt this market was going to be huge. No one else was looking at it, and we could win. But put the context there. Is it Barry and Joey Levin saying, hey, what should we do with Vimeo and who should run it? And you say, hey, I have an idea. Or are you sort of feeding them constantly while Carrie's there? Or or 
Where does this happen? Uh, it was never, I would say, as explicit or clear as that. The reality is there was never a conversation about who would run it. It was just, what do we want to be? And there was a lot of conversation about, okay, if the original content, Asfod strategy, is a question mark, what else could we be? Right. So one day Joey announces through basically a press release, we're getting, we're not doing that. Did he, I can't remember. Did he say we're doing this instead? Or he did. Just, okay. He did. Yeah. So that it was wasn't a two-stage process. Yeah. It was. It was a one-stage process, and I think, um, and, and the reason for that is because what did not happen was that we said, "Oh, option A doesn't work. We need option B." What happened was we said option A is looking riskier, and option B is looking a hell of a lot better, and that is, um, it's an important nuance because I think the, we're not just slamming on the brakes. We're also we have a direction to go. A direction that. I was very excited about for a long time, and a lot of uh, a lot of people at Vimeo were very excited about. And I think even Barry Diller and Joey and I see were interested in enough. And then we saw the results at the at that point to convince them. And I think at the time of the of the shift, what I can tell you is, IAC was all in. We were all in on this sort of software as a service, SaaS, like creator-focused strategy. Um, we saw all the signals internally. We understood the market externally. And I think that's why you've seen in the last two years, we have not been shy. You know, we've done two big acquisitions. We're doing, you know, we're being fairly um, ambitious in this and we're not being tentative. And the reason we're not being tentative is because by the time we got to this point, we were confident. I want to hear more about how you get Barry Diller to change his mind. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to hear all about that. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Back here with Anjali Sood, we've been comparing food at our various offices. That's my favorite topic. You guys must have real Google envy because you're a few blocks from Google. And they've yeah. got multiple cafeterias. I mean, yeah. Multiple Go- blocks. Google's got a lot of food. You have the uh, Frank Gehry building. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, we've got the building. We've got, you know, we've got Vimeo. we got lots of videos. Yeah, they got YouTube, though. So <laughs> there's that. So I, I, was, I was referencing Barry Diller. I love talking about Barry Diller to people who work for Barry Diller while they're still working for him. Famously a uh, tough boss. Also has a bunch of businesses that make money and that probably don't get talked about very much. Angie's List, travel, some dating conversations. Um, but he also very much clearly likes media. Um, he's got where he comes from. Um, and I think he's sort of always been sort of more interested in media than the PL shows. Um, so I could see why he kept Vimeo around for a long time because one, it might turn out to be a YouTube, and two, it's just video and it's interesting. So now you go to him and say, I have a good idea for Vimeo, but no one's ever going to write about Vimeo again. It's going to be the service business. It's going to be enterprise. Your eyes are glazing over as I'm talking about it. How do you sell that? Yeah, look, I mean, um, it's true that telling Barry Diller that we want to go from being Netflix to a B2B tools company is not sexy. Or the next HBO, right. Yeah, it's not the sexiest thing. But Barry came from Hollywood and builds this internet 
company that's done amazingly well and spun off 10 public companies in the last 20 years, I think the thing that he's probably most excited about is you know, finding these new markets and long-term differentiation that allows you to win. I mean, that's what he thinks is sexy. Right, and so you I, go, we're not going to be the next HBO, but... Yeah, and I, th- and I, but I think that what was exciting was there's this whole other side of the market, which is the creators and people behind the camera, and nobody's thinking about them in the way that Vimeo can. And it's going to be huge, and there's enough validation here that we have in the numbers and what we're seeing on the platform to give you the confidence that this isn't some crazy-ass idea that is going to fall apart. And most importantly, it leverages all of the things that make Vimeo great that we've built up over a decade. Our community of amazing creators, our focus on high quality and ad-free experience, the deep, deep investment in intellectual property we've built in video and in our player, all the data we've accumulated on how videos perform. There's so many things that we can do that no one else can do. So let's go after it. You mentioned Squarespace and Wix, and those seem to be obvious complementary services. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. I haven't spend any time with Squarespace for weeks. <laughs> uh, maybe I will one day. Maybe they'll advertise here one day. But I'm assuming that they have some kind of video capacity, right? If they're helping you build a website, I'm sure they have some feature where you can also make a video pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, is, that, well, is that your competition? Is that who you're going after? No, I, I think of those guys as, as partners, and we do have conversations with them, and you can easily, you know, embed Vimeo, uh, the Vimeo player mm-hmm. on their websites. And so, you know, I think it's very complimentary. And by the way, so many of our other, what were once competitors are also partners. You know, we today partner, a lot of people don't know this, we partner with YouTube, and we actually built tools that help uh, our creators and businesses easily with one click natively distribute their videos to YouTube, to Facebook, to Twitter, to LinkedIn. And so I think the overall idea is, yeah, you need a website. And yeah, if you want to reach an audience, you've got to be on social media. A true video strategy is needs to be everywhere. And you need a different set of features and tools to do that. And what happens to that business that you guys had tried to build, right? The you can sell subscriptions to your videos. Does that stick around? Or you, I was going to say a sunset. It's a terrible verb. Yeah. Do you get rid of it? No, we, we actually... We've shifted that as well a little bit away from, um, you know, people just sort of selling a piece of content to their audience, more to actually allowing anyone to have their own over-the-top or OTT channel. So basically building the tools so that you can ha- build your own Netflix. And we, we, but we it's not going to be Netflix. It's going to be, right, it's going to be my, here's my yoga instructional Yeah, it's the Netflix stuff. for yoga or, uh, you know, the Netflix for sneakers is one that I saw recently on the platform. There's a cannabis one that's launching. Sure, sure. And what's interesting there is that's the typical, you know, we, we see big media brands using our technology. So you've got like the Jillian Michaels and the Martha Stewart's and the Criterion Collection channels who are um, who are, are sort of using our technology to go out and um, build these big businesses. But then the long tail of, you know, that yoga instructor who maybe built a, a following on YouTube, isn't making any real money from advertising, but has found that, you know, maybe she's never going to have millions of subscribers, but she can have tens of thousands of subscribers paying her real money and build a very successful business. And the standard, how do you compete with a YouTube or a Facebook, anyone who either is in that business or could be in that business, which is that's what you're focused on. Yeah. And I mean, I think there, there's a big difference. You know, in this case, we're just the technology, right? Yeah. They own the customer. They own the brand. It's very different from a YouTube or Facebook model. And again, it's not an or, it's an and. You know, what we find is that yoga instructor is very well served to continue 
continue to invest and build her YouTube following. But she's going to use that as marketing to then get those customers into her own channel where she has that relationship directly. Um, you mentioned acquisitions. You bought something called Magisto. Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah, Magisto. Magisto. Uh, yeah, just announced that a few weeks ago. I saw $200 million. That seems like a lot of money for, a, for an Israeli tech company. We didn't disclose company. the amount. I, I'm not sure where that number came from, uh-huh. but I, I wouldn't. Well, it generally um, comes to the people who sold value. the company. And that is going to allow people to, it's part of the suite, right? It's make make your own video. It's automated. Yeah. So this is, um, it's primarily um, a mobile a mobile app, and it allows really any small business to easily create short-form videos for social media specifically. So um, this is not us trying to compete with like uh, an advanced video editing software like an Adobe. Um, It's really trying to solve a new problem, which is the fact that today, if you want to be making videos for social media, the shelf life of those videos is super short. The stat that I I think is crazy is that 75% of views that you get on a Facebook video happen in the first four days, which means if you're not making new videos every couple of days, like you don't have a video strategy. And so if you think about, you know, the average small business, they're not going to have the budgets or the resources to have like their own shoot and hire a crew and be shooting video and making it every four days. And so what this app does is it has a variety of different tools, it pulls in stock footage and clips that you shoot yourself from your phone. Gives and you audio, you, you hit a button, you, you made audio. a video. Yeah, it gives you kind of a foundation. You're not gonna win an, you're not going to win an award it. for that video, but it will be effective and novel enough. And Yeah, and I think um, that's the tool today. I think the opportunity that Vimeo sees with that tool is actually how do we make it so how do we sort of combine what Vimeo offers with our community and the inspiration and quality that we have with that tool? How can we actually elevate the standards for those types of videos? And how do we get to a place where any any small business is making beautiful, high-quality content on a regular basis for social media? How are your video-making skills? My video-making skills are, I would say, subpar. Um, it's hard to make good it's video, really right? Hard. It's, it's really hard. It's really hard. It's easy to take a photo, make an okay photo, right? That's why Instagram really works. It's pretty easy to write, unfortunately, for me. <laughs> but video, really hard. It's, it's hard to make video that someone's going to watch for more than a couple seconds. Yeah, it's hard. And I think this is where one of the things I get really excited about is how Vimeo can use all the data that we have around what actually makes videos engaging and gets people to watch them for longer or, you know, um, click when you want them to click or uh, or have a positive sentiment about that video. We actually have an amazing amount of data we aggregate across platforms because we're sort of in this agnostic situation. And uh, I think what you're going to see from us in the next couple of years is us start to use that data and feed it into the tools that we're building. Use this so kind we, of shot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and I just has suggestions and recommendations, yeah. never in a prescriptive way, because the creative control, will, we will always, always, sure. always prioritize giving that to the creator. But I think that what we hear is people, you know, people understand that audiences are changing and the way that they engage with video content is changing and they're looking for help. And, and the rules help. around, the rules and guidelines around distribution change, right? Facebook is promoting this kind of video. Yeah. So if you want to rank higher, you need to do this. I mean, Facebook just recently shared, I think a couple of weeks ago, they've, they've obviously been prioritizing video in the feed. Um, and their algorithms for a long time, but they recently announced that they're now going to start prioritizing original video content 
and people that post frequently. So it's it's constantly changing. And it's only going in one direction, though, which is more video, better quality video, and it needs to be something that, it needs to be a tool that anyone can use. Mm-hmm. I still want to figure out how you campaign for the job without looking <laughs> like you were campaigning for the job. Or maybe you, maybe you do campaign for the job. Right again. It's not a. It's not Barry Diller. Is not someone who's just going to sort of go. Oh, I. I don't know you, but I found you in a crowd. And I'm going to give you the job. Right. Yeah. yeah. How do you convince him and Joey that, that this should be your job? I had no idea that I could be CEO of Vimeo. I'm just to be honest with you. So I wasn't campaigning for the job. Because you were how old when you got the job? It was 33. I just turned. I was about to turn 34. So. Honestly, I didn't think IC would ever have the guts to not only shift, but put me in that role. And um, so I wasn't, I, I genuinely wasn't campaigning for the job. I was absolutely campaigning for the strategy. And I was not shy about that. I was really open about the fact that I thought it was a better strategy for us long term. I thought it was one where we could be differentiated and really solve a problem no one else was solving. And every time that we had results or something positive to show that, I was, you know, I was presenting it to the company. I was yeah. presenting it to Joey. I was I was so you're aggressively promoting the strategy. <laughs> you're campaigning for that unabashedly. Yes. <laughs> and then do you say, and by the way, if you can't find anyone else after a year, I could be CEO, or are you suggesting that along the lines, or did they come to you and say, this is a good strategy and you should be the one to do it? It, it was the latter. Yeah. Uh, it was the latter. How does that conversation um, happen? I think Joey called me into his office one morning and said, I think the the Friday before he had asked me some questions about, you know, hypothetically, like, what would you do if you had more resources or, you know, if, if Vimeo was to focus on this? And then I think literally that was on Friday and I think on the Monday he called me into his office and he said, I think uh, we want to make this shift and we'd like you to run Vimeo. And then I said, are you serious? And then he said, yes. And I said, just because I thought it was like the appropriate thing to do, uh-huh. I said, oh, I'll let me, let me think about it for you, like a right, day. Because you don't want to appear over Yeah, or, I didn't want to be like, yes, please. Um, but by the way, the <laughs> option of you not running it is you leave, right? Yeah, I mean, and he was, I, mean, I think he even made a joke where he was like, yes, of course you can take time, but just to be clear, like you'd be crazy <laughs> not to do this. Uh-huh. And predictably, with I think I, I held off like five hours and then I was like, this was, is amazing. Was there any question fell. in your mind like, I want to talk about your background, but but you have not been CEO of anything prior to this. Um, was there any thought that I don't know, maybe maybe I shouldn't be doing this? Maybe I should get a year of something else under my belt first? Or I think <laughs> I don't know if this says more about me than anything, but no, there was not any question in my mind. But only because I had a lot. Again, I had a lot of confidence having done having run that the business at a much smaller scale, but I had been doing it for a year. And I knew at that point, I, I knew that I knew the business and I knew our users and I knew the opportunity inside and out. And I think if I hadn't had that year sort of under Joey, sort of doing it a little bit under the radar, uh-huh. I might have felt differently. But when I stepped into it, I was really I'm I was doing excited. This job already. I was, yeah, I felt like I'd been doing the job and I felt really well positioned. Um, and you have to remember, you know, I, I did know Vimeo extremely well for five years. I knew the team really well. You know, I felt like I was uh, in a really good place. So you've got this great resume, includes Harvard, <laughs> Time Warner, Amazon. Um, what was your last job before you got to Vimeo? I was at Amazon. I was actually at a subsidiary uh, of Amazon called diapers.com. Uh-huh. And I was running marketing 
there. So I was I went from selling diapers online to online video. Diapers.com no longer exists, right? It does not. It was a company they bought. There was a whole controversy over it. Yep. It's still a controversy, I think, because that company no longer exists, and now there's just Amazon who sells you diapers. Yep. Yeah, I think that, that was a classic. Uh, yeah, I think Amazon— knew they had to get in with moms online, acquired diapers.com, and then ended up consolidating it. We are fascinated with Amazon. Everyone's fascinated with Amazon. <laughs> How do you get to Amazon? Because that must have been pretty early in your career. Yeah, actually, um, so I started my career in, in finance, um, investment banking, and I wanted to get out of finance. At a bank no one's ever heard of. And, yeah, like, I, uh, it's, I mean, it's called Sage and Advisors, but it was— I have only heard of it because <laughs> I've been Googling it. Yeah, I, uh, when I started, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get into investment banking um, when I was looking to get a job, and— so I, they, they were just starting because I was the first analyst they hired. I was like a, a startup investment bank, believe yeah. it or not, those exist. But I, uh, I wanted to get out of investment making. I wanted to go into the e-commerce world. And so— You knew um, that or you knew you wanted to work at Amazon or the same thing? I wanted to work in tech and I was intrigued by Amazon. Obviously, they were you know doing incredibly well. And so I managed to get in the door at Amazon. Um, I, I managed to do kind of like a summer internship there in corporate development, business development, which is kind of like a segue way between finance and, like, being an operator. But I'm assuming they have a thousand applications, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, again, it wasn't like you were finding this startup no one's ever heard of. It's yeah. Amazon, and it's 10-ish years ago. Yep. So they're yep. already a mammoth. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had to—yeah, I mean, obviously, I had to go through all the—you jump through all the hoops to get the job. But I think, for me, it was more that the job I started at at Amazon wasn't the one I wanted to be doing. It was just the one that was closest to my skill set. And then I basically got in, and then I— effectively, you know, tried to do a really good job and then say, hey, is there any way you can help me transition into the thing I really want to do? And ultimately, I was able to do that. And I got to try a lot of different things at Amazon. And look, I think one of the things about that company, there's obviously lots of opining and, and discussion around Amazon's culture. But one of the things I found from my experience is they were very comfortable putting giving people opportunities to do things they hadn't done before. You don't and, know how to do this. We think you will figure it out and yeah. you'll be good at it. Yeah, and I was really attracted to that. And then actually it's one of the reasons I ended up going to Vimeo and going to IAC was that Barry Diller has that same philosophy, you know, which is like put people in situations explicitly where they may be uncomfortable, but that's when they'll learn and that's when they'll grow. And it's not the right fit for everybody, but for me, it ended up being not only the right fit, but obviously, you know, I'm a beneficiary of having, I think, a, a great career that I never imagined I'd have because of that. So you were marketing diapers yes. at Amazon. Yes. Now you're marketing video services. Yes. What What does the Amazon experience teach you about what you're doing now? Um, it's, you know, it's all the classic stuff. I think the first and foremost, it all, all starts with the customer. Amazon was always, and they talk about it, but they really do walk the walk on that. You know, you have to understand the customer. And if you're not adding value to the customer, like, what are you marketing? That was a big one for me. And it, it actually, when I got to Vimeo, I spent a ton of time talking to creators. And that's when it first started to click that there's this pain point and friction that they're experiencing. And we just, there wasn't the, the tools were not there that were solving it. So I think the customer focus was a huge one. It seems like the major difference is, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, keep no. Going, but everyone who needs a diaper knows they need a diaper, yes. right? It's quite clear, no mystery. And they're all familiar with Amazon, right? Yeah. So they're going to go to Amazon.com or diapers.com and search for diapers and buy them. Um, so I'm not saying it's an easy job, but it's a different job, yep. whereas especially now with what you're doing, you need to go to that flower shop or the yoga person or whoever and say, you may not even know you need to make video yet. Yeah. 
or you don't literally have any idea how to do this. I'm going to exp- and by the way, we're this company you probably haven't heard of, and you think we're or Venmo. You think we're Venmo. <laughs> um, so it's it's a lot different. It's totally different, and I would say the tactics that we've taken at Vimeo are really different. And this is where again, like it's not about me having had a playbook at Amazon that I could apply to Vimeo because the space that we're in, it's changing too fast. There is no playbook. It's just uh, it's just about being smart and like getting signals and reacting to them. And like what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to do things differently. There is no like formula. But ultimately, if you just go back to the fundamentals, is there a real problem, a big problem? Can we truly solve it? The rest, you know, how we get there, how we market and all of that, to me, those are just tactics. If those other more fundamental things are true, then you can be successful. I always think about Shopify as a great example. There was a time when most people were probably quite skeptical of like how many people out there really want to build their own e-commerce company. Mm-hmm. Like how big is that going to be? And like is that a problem? And what does Shopify do? And now they're, you know, I think they're the $30 billion market cap. And it's, it's so obvious. I think that's what is going to happen in video. And I think Vimeo is positioned to be that that company where hopefully in a few years, if I do my job and and we do what we need to do, like people will look back and be like, oh, that's so obvious. Of course, everyone needs a video strategy and every business in the world will um, will pay for it. I met you probably a couple of years ago. You gave me a great tip. I said, what company are you interested in that's not your company? You said Patreon. I did, yes. Bell went off. Um, and then two other people said it. All right, I got now <laughs> pay attention to Patreon. Who who are you fascinated with who you're not competing with or directly working with? Yeah. Um in the video space. No, just period. Oh, just generally. Who's oh. interesting? Honestly, I um if I had like a company crush, it would be Zoom. You know, they're they're going the, the super up boring conference go, company oh, that yeah, we use all the, the time. Super yeah. boring, you know. And it's I mean I you know, they just shared some of their numbers. Um, and it's just, it's, I have like so much respect for the ability to scale the way they have while being profitable with a product in an industry that, again, doesn't seem very sexy or yeah. like seem and like, And by the you way, know, no one ever says, change. I love Zoom. Yeah, no they one say, says we're that. we're going to use Zoom. Yeah. But they don't say, oh, I love it. Yeah. And, and maybe this is why I'm like such a good fit for a SaaS business. Because for me, I think it's like the the most exciting, coolest thing is what they've done. And what I think is so great about it is they built a product that just changed the standards for everybody. And it's like a no-brainer. Because prior to this, you used a Cisco thing, or if you work at Facebook, you use BlueJean, whatever. This yeah, is just you, a you, thing. they redefine the way we think about, about video conferencing. And I um, I think that is, for me, I just have a lot of respect for, for companies that approach problems that way. And as I say, I th- we have a lot of work to do at Vimeo to get there in the video world because the problem we're trying to solve is extremely complex today. But I think technology is, you know, lowering those barriers to entry. We have the brand, we have the scale, we have the community. I do think we can do it. And so I, I just look at what Zoom does and I think um, they've really cracked the code for how to build a true best-in-class SaaS business. So you're running this thing within a public company. They've broken you out, and the idea is to convince shareholders that they're not giving, their investors that they should be giving IAC much more credit for yeah, you. Yeah, that, that we're not worth businesses. like negative a billion dollars. Or yeah. <laughs> so that's good because you're getting a spotlight shown on you. Also, there's a spotlight. What sort of pressure does that put on you? I think there's trade-offs. Um Look, or is the, it no pressure because Barry Bedillo and Joey Levin would be looking at you regardless of whether the numbers uh, are I out look, there? There's definitely—it's not that there's less pressure, but of course when you have quarterly re- 
earnings, I think there's a more there's always a risk that you can get more short term oriented versus long term oriented, um, and that is there's a known risk that I have to manage and that IAC has to manage. The reality is, I would take that trade off any day of the week. Like for me, if I if we were a VC you know, backed private company, I'd be spending all of my time fundraising. And I don't have to do that. I get to think about the strategy and what we're going to do for our users. And that is way more valuable to me. But I do have to always balance the short-term versus long-term thinking. And I think what's nice about IAC is they are obviously patient investors. You know, they've owned Vimeo for a long time. Mm-hmm. And in all the categories that they've played in, they've always been quite patient. And so that's an important counterbalance to the whole like quarterly earnings thing. Um, but right now, you know, I I think like the spotlight probably forces us to be a little more disciplined and rigorous than we might otherwise be. And I try and think of that as a, as a good thing. You just slop cash around and go exactly. back and ask, ask the Saudis for more money. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you can. Anjali, thanks for coming. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Anjali Sood for coming on this podcast. Really cool to talk to her. Also cool. I got to talk to Derek Thompson, who's also a podcaster and a writer. He's been on this podcast before. So smart. We had him on again. We talked about his new podcast, Crazy Genius, and everything he writes about, which is pretty much what this podcast talks about. Um, You'll figure it out right away because you're going to hear about it right now. Derek Thompson here. Are you still a senior editor at The Atlantic? That's where you were the last time we talked. I am now a staff writer. Is that promotion or a demotion? It is a correction. Uh, I was a senior editor for a long time, (laughs) even though I wasn't particularly senior and edited absolutely nothing. And then Jeff Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, essentially said, let's make these titles make some sense. So I am on staff. I do write for a living. So staff writer fits the bill. And now you've got a podcast to promote, Crazy Genius Season 2. Season three. Season three. I missed a season. So the first two seasons had like a two-month hiatus. So it was one of those blink and you miss the gap between seasons one and two. But we are technically in season three. Okay. We've got that for the record. Last time you were here, a few years ago, Recode Media fans or avid fans, they remember your last appearance, you were promoting a book called? Hitmakers. Hitmakers. I want to talk about that as well. And we can talk about the internet and the economics of the internet. I want to start with an article you wrote a few months ago called, I think, The Attention Economy is a Malthusian. Did I pronounce Malthusian correct? I think you did. That's Trap. how I pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so here's that, the, I, That's I, an intimidating and then an attractive word, but basically you're saying. Yes. What I'm basically saying in The Attention Economy is a Malthusian Trap is the idea that it feels like a lot of, it's a rare thing for the largest companies in the world to essentially be participating in an attention economy, to be trying to gather up people's slices of time to look at ads or look at content. Because even while Google and Facebook still insist they're not media companies, that is in fact what they are. They are gathering your attention and They're selling ads. They, ads. The metrics on those ads are impressions. Those yeah. impressions are sliver of time. And time is finite. So there is a Malthusian trap in the attention economy because you can't create more hours of time. So what I was saying essentially in that article was that it was really interesting to me the degree to which you had sort of the first generation of large tech companies being built in the attention economy, but that there was a ceiling there because you can't create more hours in a day. And this was resonant with me because there's sort of a thing in the back of my head that even though I love writing about media and and old media and digital media and and established companies and technology, I'm upending it, it. and even though this is an incredibly exciting time when you've got Netflix versus Apple versus Amazon versus AT&T, what I've been hoping to write about for years, it's all happening now, it also kind of feels settled in some ways. Yeah. I think that's what you were getting at. Yeah, it does feel a little bit settled. And I do think that you see a lot of these companies that have thrived 
in the attention economy now looking for the next mountain to climb. Right. So just to back up, so it's it's not settled because we don't know sort of where the pieces of the old media companies are going to end up, but they're going to be sort of absorbed and scattered amongst the wind. Um, it's that the Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon, as we know them, sort of have reached their logical end in terms of gathering your attention and trading that for ads. Like, they're still going to make a lot of money. They're still growing at an enormous rate, but it's kind of a settled path. Yeah, it, it is settled, and it's just like, how many more hours can you possibly spend looking at your phone? If you spend seven, eight hours a day already looking at your phone, if you're waking up in the middle of the night to check your phone already, you're already engaging with an attention economy that has certain limits, because how much time, how much more time could you possibly be spending with these devices. Right, and even this itch we have, like, well, maybe there'll be a device, it'll be an AR goggle, or it's going to be something that shoots up out of your watch or whatever it is, and regardless of whether that tech actually happens, you're still there's still a finite amount of time you're going to spend consuming stuff on Right, that. exactly. So what I said is that the mountain of attention had essentially been climbed, that you had all these companies, the Facebooks and the Googles, even the Netflixes, essentially saying, we are seeing our profit growth or our revenue growth start to slow down because we are reaching the mountain Malthusian limits of this attention economy. So what's the next mountain that can be climbed? I listen to Scott Galloway talk a lot about the future of retail, and I think that a lot of these companies are looking to add a retail layer to their attention economy because that is another mountain. So you look at what we need say, a new business line. Exactly. The new business line is selling you things. Exactly. Right. We have your attention. What else can we have? How about your wallet? So you have Instagram essentially saying, all right, we're already the most popular social media app among teenagers and young people in America. They're already obsessively scrolling for four hours a day through pictures and influencers, et cetera. What more can we get from them? Well, how about some of their direct money? Because there's only so many ads that we can show them without making them feel like the entire platform is now in scrolling advertising. Is there any reason to think this won't succeed? It seems like a very logical step and very sort of easy, uh, relatively speaking, for Instagram, whoever, to sort of add a commerce function. We live in a world now where, I love the word drop shipping. it sounds very William Gibson, mm. where, where you can add, a, you can build a commerce department without ever touching a good, mm -hmm. right? It seems like this is pretty easy to sort of bolt on. I think that with Instagram specifically, it should be pretty easy to layer this on. So if you imagine that millions of people are already interacting with influencers for hours a day and then going to a separate site to buy the makeup product that that influencer is selling, then it makes a lot of sense for Instagram to say, wait a second, we'll just put a buy here button so that people can make that purchase directly on Instagram. And rather than Amazon get that little bit of money for the purchase, instead, Instagram is kind of creating a digital emporium where they capture the entire value of that exchange. Yep. So I get that. I think that that's a pretty low, that's low hanging fruit. But at the same time, if you think about, you know, Google and Facebook in conquering the attention mountain created products that didn't really exist entirely. There wasn't a global digital social network. There wasn't a global digital search engine. They were first to market. They captured the market, became monopolist, and, you know, climbed the mountain. But there's already a king of the mountain in retail. Maybe there's five, right? Like Walmart and Amazon and a handful of other companies 
are just, they're sitting there. They're yep. getting people's money all the time. So if you're a Facebook or Google um, or even Netflix trying to, say, become Disney, right, combine an entertainment business with a merchandising business, you are competing against established incumbents. And so you have to find some way to build a new kind of product. One solution to that problem is to bundle to say if you're Nike, for example. Okay, we know that people love Nike. We know that people are spending um, a, lot of, a lot of time and a lot of money interacting with our stuff. What if we want to become a healthy living bundle? What if we create a relationship with a hospital and then also buy, I don't know, sweet green and a handful of brands that signify health and that if people subscribe, pay a certain amount of money to the Nike bundle every single month or every single year, they can essentially live inside of this umbrella of healthy products and tell themselves I'm being a super healthy person because I'm a member of the Nike cult that's an interesting way to compete with these incumbents by essentially creating a new kind of umbrella. Brand. That all makes sense. It, I, but it also does make sense to me. I mean, this, this, you've heard this fantasy for a couple decades now. They're still talking about it at NBC about what if you're, if you're watching TV, and this, this, this goes back so long that the, the, the standard analogy was you're watching Friends and you see Jennifer Aniston on TV, and she's wearing a sweater, and you'd like to buy that sweater, wouldn't it be great if you could click a button on your remote control and order it? So they've been talking about that and not delivering it for a long time. It seems like they actually will be able to deliver it any minute now. Um, but that idea of saying, we have your attention, what if we just also took your credit card out? It seems like the real hurdle is, do we have your credit card or not? So that's where Apple and Amazon have huge advantages, where Google is still behind because they are slow to get people's payments out, where Facebook, I think, has a real mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. No, that's interesting. So one thing that I've noticed on Amazon Prime, I believe, is that when you pause Amazon Prime, at least when I'm watching it on Roku, they have an overlay that shows you all the characters yeah. in the scene. I imagine you it's could do... X-Ray. It's, it's called X-Ray. I imagine you could do the same thing with brands. Yep. I imagine you could opt into a brand X-Ray where you press pause and then it shows you, you know, this shirt came from Theory and these pants came from J. Crew, and you're like, oh, wow, I would actually like those pants. And there'd be some easy, like, one-click thing that would allow you to buy the product. That's possible. I could totally see something like that happen. I wonder, though... It's, it's a little bit intrusive. I feel like people kind of want to be a little more laid back when they're watching yep. Netflix and Amazon. So you're, you kind of have to be in a different frame of mind when you're you know, watching television, but also a part of you has your thumb perched over a button to maybe buy anything that you happen to see. That kind of, it, it, I it's think somewhat, it can go both ways, though, right? And, you've, and there's a whole gener multiple generations now of people being trained to consume video while they are doing other stuff with their phones or the whole tw uh, Twitch theory of while you're watching an NBA game, you're also going to want to sort of scroll and look at stats. I don't know if that's the case, but that's where people think we're headed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and watching television is already a multi-screen experience. I mean, yeah. I, I, I sometimes find myself, unless I'm watching something truly absorbing, like maybe Chernobyl, I find myself really bored after five minutes if there aren't at, if there isn't at least one other screen active. At least, to, yeah. Like, to me, that's the, the sign that I'm watching something remarkable is that I actively put my phone away. Right. The one screen test. 
The yeah. last time I did that was The Night Of, which is a couple years ago. I absolutely. Understand. I thought the first episode of The Night Of was absolutely spectacular. Yeah. I thought it, it, it became a, a two-screener for me as it went on through the season. But that first episode was definitely a one-screener. Let's talk about content a little bit. Um, I want to call it Hitmakers. Was it Hitmakers? Okay, I want to make sure I'm not talking about someone else's book. Um, I do remember our conversation from Hitmakers, which we were talking about the idea of what makes something popular. And you had two different ideas. And one of them was fundamentally that distribution is more important than content. Not that content's irrelevant. Obviously, but the main idea is can you get this thing in front of a lot of people and how does that happen? So cut to this year. I was just talking about it. We're going to have AT&T versus Netflix versus everyone else. Disney came out a couple months ago and said, here's what we've got. We're not saying we're taking on Netflix, but we're taking on Netflix. The two things can coexist, but we're taking them on. And our advantage is content. Look at all the shit we have. They didn't say shit. It's Disney. <laughs> um, and everyone went, Wow. Absolutely. That seems to me like a, like an accurate response to, wow, that's amazing. Um, I, I think they'll do very well, up at least up until a point. And it seems to me to be an argument for this is content. And yes, we're going to use the internet to distribute it, but the reason we're going to succeed out of the box is all this stuff. Um, how does that square with, with your theory of distribution versus content? Let me start here. The yeah. evidence that I was right. And I'm open to the idea that theories in the book were wrong, but here I think I was definitely right. The evidence that I was right, I don't think you find it so much yet in Disney versus Netflix, because Disney Plus doesn't exist yet. Yes. But look at Netflix versus cable. Yep. Look at a show like You. When it appears on Lifetime, the number of people who watch it can be like countable on two fingers. But you suddenly put it on Netflix, and it becomes a absolute hit. Right, and it's also why Friends is a huge show, and I think when Friends moves off of Netflix and goes to whatever the Time Warner thing, the Warner Media AT&T thing is called, it's going to be much less impressive, and might maybe The Office, when it moves off of Netflix and goes to the NBC thing to be named later thing, will be less impressive, because it won't just be on your TV, on your phone, a click away. Right, and so you basically, you, you, take, the same, you take the same product, you put it on two different distribution channels. On one, it's a failure. On another, it's a hit. The difference is the distribution network. And so that I see, I see Netflix evolution as a hit maker to be proof that distribution is creating hits because yeah. it's creating hits from shows that had their shot somewhere else and totally failed. Yeah, I do agree with you on that. And we, and we published uh, someone's survey saying basically the thing people like about Netflix um, is the the content was like fourth or fifth most interesting to them? It was the container. It was the fact that it didn't have ads. That it was on demand, price point, all of that. And then yes, there's stuff we like too. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the content is almost secondary. So, which so is let's, really stip let's stipulate that Netflix argues uh, for the primacy of distribution. So how do you think Disney will fare with this product? I think Disney's going to be extremely successful with this product, provided that the technology works. I think that the example of ESPN Plus seems to show that the technology, the distribution technology that Disney has is pretty good, or at least is good adequate. enough, is yeah. adequate, exactly. And I think with the price point being at what, like five, six seven dollars? Bucks. Seven bucks. Unbelievably cheap. And you look at the library of content that Disney has, especially given the fact that you have this generation of millennials, 85 million people entering their upper 20s, early 30s, you have delayed marriage, which means this group is just getting married, just having their first, maybe second kid. What they want from an entertainment product like a Netflix is a product that has 
obvious stuff for them and obvious stuff for their kids. Nothing is more kid-friendly than Disney. I think you could say that from a generational standpoint, from like a a demographic standpoint, Disney Plus is coming along at the very moment that you would want a streaming platform for families to come along. And that's why I am a bull on Disney Plus, even as I think if you look maybe at the next few earnings reports the company, you're not going to see its success necessarily because they're just spending so much money on this product and they're pricing it low enough that it's not going to be the kind of profit gusher that you would expect. Yeah, from they're going to sort of, this, this is a business nerd thing, but they're going to sort of move from a traditional model of reporting saying here's our revenue and here's our profits and here's the growth to the Netflix model, which is look how many subscribers we've added. Don't worry too much about the other numbers. And so the question for them will be, they, I think they've said we're going to hit 60 to 90 million in the next number of years, will be how many subs have they added? Yeah. In a weird way, the, the, you know, not that this, this isn't a stock show, a stock picking yeah. show, but in a weird way, the future Disney stock is basically dependent on whether or not Bob Iger can do a good Bezos impersonation, whether he can persuade the market to not look at profit, but instead focus on some other number of his choosing, whether it's cash flow, whether it's subscribers. And I think Iger can. I think this is someone who has proven at least in the last 15 years that he's been been extremely successful with the few really big swings that he's taken. And narrowly avoided buying Vice, which would have tarnished the record. Um, On that note, let's take a quick break. Be right back with Derek. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Back here with Derek Thompson. As promised, we're going to promote your podcast yes. on my podcast. And I was listening to your podcast, and I heard you promoting Pivot mm-hmm. with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. So we are a full—is it called Urosboros? Urosboros, uh, yes, Thank that's you. right. I knew about snake eating its tail for a long time. I didn't know it was called Urosboros. You know the Greek like, term for it, right? Yeah, no. I also—Thomas Malthus, I, I have a vague memory of learning about him, but the, the theory was that he was actually wrong. Thomas Malthus was— right about technology for the vast majority of humanity. Wasn't he saying we're going to run out of food and then this was a sort of a, in this, in this, he's a 17th century, 18th century? Thomas Malthus essentially said that there are certain natural limitations to what humans can create that will naturally result in a situation where the more people there are, the less stuff there will be to go around, so you'll have a famine and people will die. He was right about the vast majority of human life. We've been in a Malthusian trap, but ironically, at the very moment that he made his prediction, we had the Industrial Revolution, which yeah. allowed us to achieve a kind of escape velocity from Malthus. So he was kind of like the opposite of Cassandra. His 60s, prediction was 70s, wrong. where we thought the earth was going to run out of food again. This is my vague memory of it. I guess this is where we go to Wikipedia, right? Are you talking about the Green Revolution? No, it's just there was a whole series of the earth is going to collapse, by the way. It's a good thing to be thinking about in any generation, but, but it turns out that we sort of solved that. 
that problem with technology as well. Yeah, it would be uh, it would be very nice if the fears about climate change had a similar Malthusian irony, where at the very moment that we thought we were going to die, we invent some incredible machine that yeah. sort of hovers in the sky and sucks up all of the carbon dioxide. This, we're going to call this segment Peter's uninformed ramblings about technology and and uh, environmentalism. Let's let's <laughs> brought to you by brought to you by Monsanto. no one. No one is sponsoring <laughs> this. Um, you have sponsors for your podcast. I'm sure they're great. Oh no, GE. I heard. So just let's lay out the premise of Crazy Genius. I would just say it's Derek being smart. It's, it, it, I mean this in the best possible way. It's like reading one of your great Atlantic pieces, and it's just the audio equivalent of that. Well, yeah, we tried to make a, an audio essay. I'd say that the formula, to the extent that there is a formula, is we ask really big questions, and we try to break them down into two reasonable answers. That's where the crazy slash genius comes from. You, you, you present some idea, is it good, is it bad? So a classic would be from the first season, should we break up Amazon? Talk to a lot of smart people who said yes. Talk to a lot of smart people who said no. We asked, uh, do aliens exist? Are there advanced species of aliens that exist in the universe? Talk to the smartest people who said yes. Talk to the smartest yeah. people who said no. And then at the end of every episode, I try to answer the question for myself, create some kind of synthesis. Your Carl Sagan moment where you sort of step out with your mock turtleneck. Exactly. I, I love my mock turtlenecks. So I listened to all three that are out so far. There was one on, on uh, extremism online. It sort of starts off in sort of traditional, you know, what's the problem with YouTube and Twitter? And then it takes a nice turn, which I really, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Um, I did want to ask you about the history of privacy, um, which is the first episode. And you sort of, this is a thing that I think, I think about a lot because we're writing about it a lot. I've been writing about it one way or another for a decade. And I'm kind of been inured to it. Um, the sort of, is privacy a problem? Right? Do people care about privacy? Should we just concede that there is no privacy online? Um, now we're very much in a moment where there's a lot of smart people saying this is a real problem. We should do something about it. Do we have an actual privacy crisis? And is it something that's different than we've had in previous generations? I do think that we have a privacy crisis. But I also think it's really, really, really hard to describe. And I think it's hard to describe because that which we call privacy has changed so much in the last 200 years. I mean, the word does not exist in the U.S. Constitution. The closest thing that you come to a privacy amendment is something like the Third Amendment, you know, no forcible quartering of soldiers in people's homes. Privacy at the time Because that was, would disrupt your privacy. Right, that would, dis that would disrupt my privacy, certainly. And as you point out, as you point out in the podcast, right, most people didn't own homes then. That was, no that was a homes. rich person's amendment. Yeah, exactly. A, the, a vast, vast minority of, the, of Americans owned homes at the time. So the idea of privacy really was invented in the late 19th century. The term right to privacy, coined by Louis Brandeis, was coined in the 1890s. He was wasn't talking about privacy from government or companies. He was talking about privacy from journalists. Brandeis's elite friends were being bothered by these muckrakers, and he was like, yo, journos, leave us alone. Leave we us rich people a, alone. Leave the rich people alone. We have a right to privacy. So in the late 19th century, privacy was about individuals' rights to be left alone from snooping journalists. In the 20th century, you have more Orwellian concepts of privacy, right to be left alone from governments. There was this amazing lawsuit in the late 1940s where two guys in Washington, D.C. sued the D.C. transportation uh, unit because there was Muzak being piped in on the public buses, and they said this was an infringement of their right to be left alone. That's how freaked out people were in the 1940s, 1950s about government intrusion. But privacy today isn't about journalists. It's not about government. It's about a right to be left alone 
by companies that we are kind of implicitly saying, hey, you can spy on us. We are clicking OK buttons. We are choosing to use Amazon and Facebook and Google. And so I think the most important part that I wanted to get across in this podcast is that we're used to thinking of privacy as being about individual property. But the future of privacy isn't about individuals, and it's not about property. It's about collective behavior. Why was Cambridge Analytica so scary to so many people? It's not because some company in England changed any individual's vote. If you surveyed a bunch of people who took that personality quiz by Cambridge Analytica, they might all say, I voted the exact way I would have with or without that personality quiz. But the existence of this company using millions or thousands and millions of people's data in order to make Americans question the functioning of their democracy, that's why it was a privacy scandal. It wasn't about individual See, decisions. I don't think Cambridge Analytica is behavior. a privacy scandal. I think it's a we Facebook elected Donald Trump scandal. I think that's I think I think if this was not Trump, I think if it was Clinton, if it wasn't related specifically to the election, I think this is a bump in the road. To me, it's telling that I, I think for a lot of people, the bigger issue with Facebook, if you just hear them speak just anecdotally, is Facebook is listening to me and showing me ads. They're spying on me when I'm talking, um, which is not true, and, and um, but still interesting. And or you know, and there were you know a dozen New York Times Facebook stories, and one that I think was problematic in many ways, but I think also resonant was. The Royal Bank of Scotland or Face or Netflix or Spotify is reading my private messages somehow from Facebook, which again was not really true. <laughs> um, but that's what I think of when I think I think when regular people think about that, they're thinking that Facebook somehow, along with Fox News, elected Donald Trump, and that's bad, um, and that somehow they're reading their their mail. The general sort of I'm trading my information for a funny video or a coupon or whatever, I think a lot of people are okay with that. It's interesting. I think you have a a gap between what people say they're afraid of and their actual behavior. So according to polls, if you ask people, like, are you freaked out about privacy? Do you think digital privacy is a problem? They say yes. But if you ask them, would you pay, how much would you pay for a service, like say, you know, DuckDuckGo or a yeah. Facebook that didn't actually use behavioral tracking in order to serve you ads, two-thirds of them say zero dollars. There was a tweet over the weekend. I think it was Brian Stelter saying there's a big market for, uh, you know, a, a privacy-centric Facebook or Twitter, and it got retweeted by all these people who are using Twitter, right? <laughs> and, and so, you know, they're very, they very much want some alternative to Twitter, say, all the people who use Twitter. I, I think for a regular, especially if it involved money, if I had to pay to use a Twitter or a Facebook, I think it's a non-starter. Yeah, I do think um, probably the strongest argument among people who say that this is really just about a novelty bias, fear of new companies, fear of Facebook that is really engendered in fear of Donald Trump. Ask them this, say, how would you feel about a technology that surveilled your credit card data, that surveilled your spending and your debt, that shared that information with banks, that attached some obscure number to it between 400 and 850, that at the very moment you were making the most important financial decision in your entire life, that information would be shared with financial institutions, but if you asked to see it too often, we might punish you. An American who hadn't bought a house- there's no appeal. Would say, oh, oh, by the way, there's no appeal, and if you try to even figure out why your number is 815, which means nothing, or 650, which means equally nothing, 
it'll be almost impossible for you to figure it out. If you told an American that had not gone through the mortgage application process about this technology, they would probably say, this is a horrifying concept. But the idea of, spoiler alert, credit reports yeah. is 70 years old, at least in terms of modern American technology. And by the way, when you buy that actually house, hundreds of years when old. you buy that house and move in, Guess what's in your mailbox? A bunch of shit sent to you by companies who now know that you have a mortgage because the company has sold that data to you yeah. or your data has been sold. So we live in a surveillance capitalism world, and it is worth, I think, asking questions about what the worst externalities of living in that world are. And I do believe that there are some scary externalities. I do think that they, that, that privacy, as described by even some of the people who are, you know, at the New York Times and, you know, working on, on privacy pieces day in and day out, I think they have a point. But I also think that we need to reckon with the fact that there are probably more serious violations of our privacy that have nothing to do with Facebook and Google. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a couple other things I'm thinking about. One is, you know, we've got 10 years of reporting about sort of uh, privacy issues regarding uh, the military, right? Snowden, NSA, all that mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, and one of the common responses is, hey, if you're not doing anything bad, you got nothing to worry about. And if you're of a certain mindset, you go, that's pretty Orwellian and scary. And I think for a lot of people, it's resonant. They go, yeah, I, I do want the police and the military keeping me safe and checking up. And since I'm not building a bomb or sending money to jihadis, like, good, I'm good. Uh, the other thing I think about a lot is I think for a lot of people, privacy is uh, pornography and their medical records. <laughs> and as long as they don't think anyone's watching that or sharing that, they're, they're kind of okay. Right. And there are examples of people's medical records being shared mm -hmm. or medical records that were thought to be private being made public, but they are relatively rare. Yeah. And so, again, in this episode, I wanted to be clear on what is the national privacy crisis? What's the best way that we can describe it? And at the very end, I was convinced that there is a crisis to talk about, but I definitely come into the episode closer to what you're now describing as your position of essentially saying, I get that these threats can be described, but I cannot, I, I, I cannot confess that I feel frightened by this thing. Yeah, I, uh, you had Julia Anguinon, uh, mm -hmm. who's great. I've had her on. She's great. Uh, she's been really doing great work about this. I'm just keep saying great for a decade or more. Um, and I think in a lot of ways it's been frustrating work for her because she keeps finding these abuses and waving a flag. And, and some people pay attention, and I think she's going to get her Craig Newmark thing back. Hope so. And so she's going to be able to keep doing this. But I, And I think she probably has more traction now in terms of, of, of interest. But I think people generally think this is something that an elite thinks about and it's people who are elite talk about. And she talks about it in, in your piece saying this is kind of equivalent to the pollution problems in the 60s and 70s and it's a collective problem. We collectively needed the EPA to step in. That analogy makes sense to me. But then again, I think about seeing environmental sort of themed movies and public service stuff and it was pretty straightforward, right? It was, hey, don't throw that litter mm -hmm. from your car on the side of the highway, it will pollute it and make it bad for everyone. But it was a very direct thing, and it meant that if you were driving down the highway and there was a bunch of garbage there, it would suck. It would also make an American Indian cry, right? Mm -hmm. um, or or there would be, you know, toxic rain, and that would affect you. Um, so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't abstract. It affected a lot of people, but it also had a very specific effect on you. Or this 
beautiful vista had been spoiled that was made you feel bad. Whereas it's hard to sort of think of collectively why losing your privacy is bad. Yeah, I think I, it's. I, I don't want to speak for Julia. I know yeah. you're, not, you're not asking me to do that, but let me let me do my best to summarize the case that she made in the podcast, which is that let's not think about sort of discarded milk cartons or things like that. Let's think about a uh, you know carbon emission. That, that, you know, driving your car, driving your pickup truck 40 miles, you know, um, burning fossil fuels. That nothing bad happens the while you're doing it. The emissions from that car aren't hurting anybody directly. No one's getting sick from that directly. There's no hurricane that learned that your car yeah. drove th 40 miles and then chose to slam into Indonesia or, or, New, or, uh, or New Orleans. But it's the collective emission of carbon that creates a world where these catastrophic things are more likely to happen. And what she would say is, with the emission of every new piece of data, it gives the most nefarious actors in the surveillance economy more tools to do something that might be catastrophic or might be seen as catastrophic like yeah. Cambridge Analytica. That's, I think, the best argument is Facebook and Google have built this amazing apparatus. It is designed to sell you things. The reason it is, it, they are people who work there are so rich, why those companies make so much money, is works really well at persuading you. Of course, other people are going to figure out other things to persuade you to do. Um, and you should think about that. That's precisely it. I think that's exactly what she would say, that it's about persuasion and she would probably go a step further to say it's about manipulation. And it's about a more fundamental question, an almost existential question of, do I want to live in a world where my data that I didn't even know that I was emitting is being used to manipulate me to make decisions that I'm not fully conscious of? Yeah. If we move it from shoes to voting on policies, people, whomever, it gets much scarier. Um, we could leave it there, but I forgot. I wanted to ask you about something. When we talked about Hitmakers a couple years ago, um, there was one moment that was embarrassing for both of us where I played uh, Migos, which at the time was the number one. I remember that. In, yeah, in it was country. extremely embarrassing. And neither of us I've been following what a Migos very, was. Very closely so we picked up on Migos. Um, besides that embarrassment, is there anything else that you would change now that you've had a couple years out of uh, beyond the book, going back and thinking about how things become popular, how virality works? I think that, you know, the, the two theses of the book were, I think, pretty much right. The thesis of familiar surprises, that we love new ideas that remind us of old ideas, whether it's in culture or in politics. I think the other thesis about the power of distribution networks was, was also true. What I missed, because this lesson became so sparklingly clear under Donald Trump, is the idea that in marketplaces of abundance, when you have a lot of competition for your attention, sensationalism sells, and there are benefits to being purposefully extreme purposefully sensational, even if there almost is no underlying content or substance. Sure. That extremity has its own inherent power in marketplaces of abundance and confusion ask, and distraction. Ask the guys who do AM radio, right? <laughs> yeah, Talk, right. I mean, I remember, I remember Henry Blodgett when I worked for him at what was then <laughs> called Silicon Alley Insider, relaying a story about talking to the guys at Slate about how to make things more popular. And there, they had taken that lesson from 
from AM talk radio, right? Make an extreme, take an extreme position. Right. And and I think that I, I didn't talk a lot about extremity. I didn't talk as much about, say, like high arousal emotions like outrage and how those two can cut through the maw of distraction. And if I could go back and rewrite some chapters of the book, I would certainly make one entire chapter about what is the psychology of why even when we know that we might be confronted with sensationalist and extreme ideas that are shouting at us, that are sort of, that are, that are nutritionless in their substance. Why do we still pay them so much attention? Sometimes you like to eat a Twinkie. Sometimes you just like to eat that epistemic Twinkie. That's it. <laughs> I forgot I wanted to ask you about The Atlantic, where you work. What's the formal name of The Atlantic? Atlantic Media something? Atlantic Media Company. So there are a couple different ways to save media companies these days. You can try to put a paywall up there. You can try to do commerce. You can hope that Loreen Powell Jobs buys your company. That is what has happened um, since we last spoke. What is life like in the Lorene Powell Jobs era? There are more writers. That's probably the biggest difference that I've noticed. I don't notice her presence or her ownership at all. I've never been told that I should write about something or shouldn't write about something because of the new ownership. But what we do see is that because of her investment, there are so many more writers. Not you guys have been public York, about that. We're going to hire a ton of people. She has certain interests, but they're not asking you to write about them. Any downside to being owned by a billionaire? Because it does seem like being owned by a billionaire can have strings attached. Yeah, I suppose it can. I I haven't noticed anything. I mean, truly, the, the most noticeable thing about being owned by Loreen is that there's so little to notice in terms of her presence um, in a good way. And there, quite honestly, I, I, I hate to be boring uh, on a podcast because it's not particularly effective content, but I have the exact same leeway to write about stuff now that I did before. I know that with other companies that have been owned by billionaires, there's sometimes been um, a problem when that billionaire decides to or thinks about uh, running for the highest office. Yeah. To date, I have no inside information that Lorene wants to be president. If she did, that might change uh, circumstances for the Atlantic's policy and politics desk. So you're saying Lorene Powell Jobs is going to run for president. I like it. We've oh made my God. news did I, did here. I oh, God. Perfect. Oh, Jeff, please don't listen to this. Thank you, Derek. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thanks to you guys for listening. Also, thanks to our sponsors who let you listen to this podcast for free. Zero dollars. What a deal. Recode Media is produced by Gold Arthur. Till Robbie edits this podcast. If you like this episode, tell someone else about it. Thank you in advance for telling someone else about it. See you soon.